This is your host, Natalie Allport, and welcome to the All In Podcast. Today, we are talking all about athlete identity. Now, I believe that this conversation also transfers to all aspects of life. So whether you're an athlete or not, I think the whole concept of identity, perfectionism, coping with injury, these topics are going to be very insightful for you as well. We have an amazing guest, Kimberly Carducci, a former D1 athlete, a swimmer, author of Eye of the Tiger, a book that just came out in the past month and I've had the chance to dive into, which is all about the athlete identity and remedying sports greatest conflict. She's also the founder of Everything Athletes. And in this conversation, we dive into her story as an athlete growing up. We go into what it means to have an athlete identity, how some of these traits that you build as an athlete or as a very, you know, intense hence singular goal-minded person can both negatively and positively impact you when to take advantage of these traits, when to pull back on these traits, how to successfully transition into retirement through learning some of these things. We also talk about perfectionism, injury coping skills, hating losing, and all those great topics. So without further ado, let's go all in. Welcome to the All In Podcast. Uh, happy Monday. So glad that you're here. Yes. Happy Monday. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so excited. Like since I, I got into your book and I'm first and foremost, like excited that you wrote a book like this, because I think books on this topic are so important for athletes and talking about the whole concept of athlete identity. That's something that we talk about a lot on the podcast and I definitely want to unpack, but let's, let's start out with your sport journey. I know you were a former uh, D1 athlete. How did you grow up, get there and then get into writing this book? Yeah. So I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, born and raised, always lived here. And as a kid, I was super energetic, overly hyper, just wanting to get my hands into too many things. My poor parents <laughs> that had to put up with me. And I just was competitive. I was a tomboy and I wanted to play as many sports as I could. So I played soccer. I played basketball with my older brother's YMCA team. I played handball. I, I think I took tennis lessons when I was super young. And then it came down to softball and swimming. That's where I spent most of my time. And as I progressed in the pool and was finding much more success swimming than softball, I decided to pursue just swimming by the time I was in middle school. And then in high school, I was doing really well. I was swimming fast times and ultimately able to swim at a D1 school. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much my sports journey in a nutshell, but was competing at the University of North Carolina my freshman year. And after my freshman year, that's when I ultimately decided to retire because I had been feeling a strong burnout. I wasn't as competitive in college as I was when I was younger. So for me, it wasn't worth swimming 25 hours, staring at a black line at the bottom of a pool every week in college. And I could have been doing so many other things and meeting so many new people. So after not making the ACC team and not making NCAAs my freshman year, I just took a step back and said, do I really want to do this for three more years or do I want to grow in other areas of my life? And it wasn't worth it to me to keep swimming. So I ultimately retired almost 10 years ago, which is crazy. I'm 28 now, so it's wild. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, it is so crazy when uh, speaking to athletes and like even myself, when I say I retired from snowboarding um, and people are like, aren't you in your twenties? Like you retired <laughs> from something. And I'm like, yeah, but like you spent your whole life doing it. Like people didn't spend, for example, if they retired from whatever job they have in their thirties for, they probably have done it less than they did a sport that they did you know, growing up. Right. Um, yeah. but there's two things I, I want to go back on. One is in early in your book, you talked about, uh, playing wall ball and that brought back <laughs> a ton of memories because I was like, wait, I haven't talked with anyone about playing wall ball in so long. That was like the best <laughs> recess game, right? Yes. 
Yep. We would always play wall ball and recess, but I would be the only girl. It was all the, you know, the little boys running around, but I wanted to play the game too. So I was the only one. Yes. We played like wall ball, kickball. What else? Manhunt. Yep. That was a big one. Sometimes basketball, sometimes soccer. Yeah. Those are the good, uh, the good days. I actually, I had a birthday party playing manhunt, like it, when I was like 21 or something, just trying to bring back awesome. those memories. But maybe, maybe this year I have to do wall ball or something. Yes, that's so awesome. <laughs> ah, it would be good. That's great. But I, I also want to go back to um, you said like you had to pick your sport fairly early, and that's a a big difference I see even between Canada and the U.S. is like we don't have as many. Well, like even college and college in Canada, like if you're really really serious about sports, you might go to the the states. But otherwise, like Canadian colleges, like for any sport, you get maybe your parents as fans. And then same thing in high school. It was like, yeah, I played high school hockey and it would be literally my parents. And um, high school, we didn't have a football team. There was definitely no swimming. Um, if you were track or anything, there's definitely nobody at all going to any games. Mm -hmm. And so for you having to like really get serious about what sport you wanted to do, even before high school, that's a trend I'm, I'm definitely seeing when I speak to American athletes versus here. Um, usually we, unless it's like hockey, which usually you get more serious about not in high school, like people, scouts aren't coming to high school games. They're coming to like your club games. Um, it's, it's just very different of the timing that you specialize. Do you think that that weighed into already experiencing burnout in your freshman year? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think it's healthy to be such a young kid and specialize in one sport so soon. I'm pretty sure my coach was the one who said, Hey, you know, you can't just keep going to swim practice and then go into softball. Like you need to pick one because I don't want you missing meets. I don't want you missing practices. I don't want you to be overtired. Like you have to pick one. I want you to pick swimming, but you have to pick one. So that was encouraged by my coach, but I don't think that's the healthiest thing. If you're having fun playing multiple sports, especially as a teenager or being 12, 13, 14, I think that's an intense part of American sports culture. That's not serving athletes as mere kids. Like you should play both sports or play multiple sports for as long as you want, if you can balance it. And if you're finding enjoyment, like you don't need to specialize in one at such a, such a young age. I just don't think that's very healthy. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I think it's, uh, I mean, I'm really lucky. My parents kind of, a lot of people here, they specialize in hockey and they specialize very early, especially now that we've had Sydney Crosby's come from Canada and all these athletes. So people think, okay, I need to get the best coaches, um, train my kids since they're four years old, just for hockey. And wow. um, what was really interesting was like, in the summer, I, my parents couldn't really afford to send me to hockey camp. So I spent six months off the ice and then I show up to tryouts and people would ask, Oh, where did you send your daughter to, to camp this summer? And my parents would be like, she played different sports every single day at, you know, outside at her cottage, uh, making up games with her brother. She played baseball. She did this. And I, I think it, there's something to that of challenging your body in these new ways and also challenging your mind because a lot of athletes, they get to tryouts in the fall and they're already like all out of hockey mentally. Yeah, that's so true too. And like, I play a lot of tennis now, just at the very beginner level, I'm, you know, just enjoying the sport, but sometimes, you know, I'll get so busy or I'll be wrapped up with other things that I won't get on the court for a month or for a couple months. But then when I go back out for the first time after taking a break, I play so much better. I don't know. Right. There's something about taking that break. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think definitely mentally and, um, and definitely even physically, like there's something to say about building those different attributes. I, I, I saw a stat about the current or last year's NFL, um, like in the Super Bowl, about how the percentage of players playing in the Super Bowl who were multi-sport athletes in high school. Um, and there was actually a pretty big chunk. Uh -huh. And I was like, yeah. interesting. I wonder if there, you know, there's something to this and something to, I mean, it would be very difficult to study, but the mental side where if they just focused on that one sport, maybe they would have burnout or had a certain injury that prevented them from even making the NFL versus having that variety. Um, they kept pushing and, and there was sustainable progress all the way until that pro level. Yeah. And I, the analogy that I like to use about that is the stock market. So if you have all of your money in a single stock, when that stock price is going up and doing well, 
you're over the moon, you're elated, you know, you're rich, you have made all this profit. But then conversely, if that stock price drops and is not doing well and it goes down, you're devastated, you're crushed, you know, you lost everything and then some. And that's kind of the danger in just pursuing one thing so intensely is those highs are going to be really high. Those lows are going to be really low. But if you can, like all the investment professionals, what's their advice when it comes to your portfolio, right? Diversify. So if you can buy, you know, multiple stocks over here, then maybe buy some cryptocurrency, then maybe get into ETFs or, you know, I'm not a finance major, so I don't know (laughs) fully all those details, but the better you can diversify your portfolio or your life or your human, the less intense those spikes are going to be. That's, that's really well put. And I love that analogy. It's so true. Um, I know people riding the crypto wave, they're in Bitcoin and they're like, oh my God, we're up 500%. And then there was the crash in the spring and it's like, oh no. And then it's back up and you're just, yeah, you're riding those highs and lows really, really hard. And you have nothing else to do when it's, you know, out, especially all your money is in something and it goes down. You're not going to sell because you're like, then I'm out. And then you can't, it's too late to diversify. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, love that analogy. And, um, I just think it's, I I think getting this information out there about, you know, diversifying is so important because, um, like we were talking about, like the parents or the pressure of parents and coaches and telling you, you need to pick your sport this early and you need to focus all your effort on it. That is such a, a big part of sports culture, especially in North America. And I think we're starting to see with athletes speaking more now about their mental health and athlete identity and athletes who have retired and are writing books like, like yours and things like that. It's starting to dismantle that narrative where you can still be the best, but you don't have to be so hyper-focused on that one thing that actually can be benefit to diversifying, like you said, and, and pursuing all those things. How, how do you have that conversation or how would you have that conversation with like a parent or a coach or even a young athlete who is just so in that narrative and that mindset of, no, I have to only do this. I can't, I can't hang out with my friends. I can't do these other things. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I would have the perfect answer for that, but I guess just being aware of the potential harmful long-term effects of not giving the child the opportunity to do other things. Like, I mean, you can just point out some of the anecdotes that, like you said, that athletes are coming forward with now and saying, hey, okay, if you want to pursue baseball and you want to do this and nothing else and do this every day for however many hours, okay, but just understand look at these other athletes that have come forward expressing that that's probably not the healthiest path to take. Like if you want to take it, that's fine, but just be understanding and have that awareness that there are going to be some emotional repercussions down the road, you know, probably not the healthiest thing to use fear tactics, but just, you know, having the child understand that intense pursuit of a singular activity has its downfalls too. Right. Yeah. So, so important. And I think even just like, for example, athletes who they just refuse to take rest days because they're addicted to training or right. You're addicted to your sport. You love it. And that's all you want to do, but that sometimes doesn't last forever. And you, if you get an injury or something that setbacks, you got to kind of take that, that precaution or that prehab approach of taking that rest day. But I think there's also just something to be said about the benefits of it, because if you do take the rest, well, then you're actually might be making more progress because you're growing and developing on those rest days and you're doing other activities. And same thing with diversifying the portfolio. There's other things that you're benefiting that could then cross over to your sport. Like there's so many things mentally, even doing other activities that could then cross over to the mental side of the sport that you're doing. Like you might learn a tactic just from a conversation with a friend and something else that you're doing. Yeah, that's so true. And I think kids, well, I think all humans, but I think especially kids learn by example a ton, right? If you think of just the young kid learning how to speak and learning vocabulary, there, if you tell them, okay, don't say this bad word, but then you, if you're the parent, if you're like in the kitchen and you drop something and you're like, oh shit, you know, that kid's going to learn by example, not by what you told them. And then that kid the next day is going to say shit. (laughs) So I think if coaches and parents can set an example of, 
hey, we're going to take Thursday and Friday off of practice so you guys can have some time to, you know, pursue another activity or just take your rest day or do something else. I think leading by example is another opportunity for coaches and parents as well. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's something it's, it's ingrained in our culture outside of sport too, right? Like that, you know, hustle and work. And um, I, I could only imagine, I know even for my parents, right? It's you go to work and work hard and, and do this and uh, work on the weekends if you have to. And that definitely does that that gets uh, replicated in, in the actions that we take and then pass on to our kids and so on and so forth. So I, I mean, over the past year with the pandemic, I feel like that narrative has started to get broken down as well. So it's not just in the sports world, which I think that'll translate to everything, which hopefully will, will cause us to, to kind of question the, that same replicated patterns that we've been doing for, for decades. Yeah. And that's one thing I struggle with. I don't know if you have any advice for me or if you're like this and you manage this, but I struggle with feeling like I have to constantly be doing something. Like if I have an extra three hours or like an extra evening where I don't have anything scheduled, I'm like, oh, well, I need to be reading like these four chapters and I need to be planning this and I need to be doing that. Like I have a really hard time letting myself do nothing. I really struggle with that. Yeah, that that's so hard. I mean, especially I think that's one of the hardest things for athletes, especially when they do retire, is like, what do you do at that time? Because you're so used to every single thing that you do from your sleep, from if you're reading a book about mindset or anything, it's all for like a singular goal. And then all of a sudden you're like, "Mm, but can I just sit here and just do nothing? Like, what is that doing for me? What where where am I going with this? It has to have a goal. And that's yeah, that's really hard. I would say the only way is, is to just do it. Like you, yeah, you kind of have to just love. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, okay, I'm going to set aside an hour or I'm just going to go for like a gratitude walk or, you know, sit on this bench with my dog and try to be present or something. And then you feel really uncomfortable, but eventually maybe you start breaking through like, Oh, maybe this actually feels good. And you keep going with that. But it, it, it's, uh, I feel like it's a constant struggle, especially you get a, a work project. You're like, go, go, go. And then all of a sudden you hit that point where you're like, no, now I need to kind of go back and you, you forgot to take that rest or, or do spend that extra time. But yeah, I think that's a constant struggle for a lot of people. I know I need to learn how to just chill. (laughs) (laughs) I've always been like that though. Even when I was younger on Sundays where I had no practice, if I didn't have a meet that weekend, I would be at the house with my parents and I'd be like, okay, what are we doing? What's the plan? Like, where are we going? What are we doing? And my mom's like, chill. Like you need to learn how to calm down. Like you need to learn just how to sit still. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, I, I completely relate. I think my parents told me that I would be a party organizer or something because if there was a day, there wasn't anything, I would make a calendar. And I was like, Hey, let's do this at this time. And then this, and if we finish these chores and we can go skiing for two hours and then they're like, what the, like, can we just you know, do nothing. No, that's just not happening. <laughs> I feel. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Chilling is hard, but, um, I, I want to go into like the book starts off kind of with the whole thing about athlete identity. And I think it will be great to just go into what does it mean to have an athlete identity? If you could just kind of explain all the, the details about that. Yeah. I think the biggest piece about the athlete identity is the fact that, and we kind of touched on this too, that athletes don't really explore other parts of themselves. They kind of go all in on being that athlete and the kind of harmful long-term effects of that is when the athlete eventually retires down the road, they're starting from scratch with basically everything else in their life or who they could be. And, you know, we've kind of been talking about this, but yeah, like training, you know, Training takes so much time, all of the effort required to be really good at your sport, going to games, going to meets, going to matches. It doesn't leave a lot of extra time to explore being something else or being someone else. And I guess, especially in America too, from such a young age, kids don't really develop or flesh out other parts of like the whole human. They're just this one athlete. So I've found that to be like a key marker of the athlete identity is when someone's only this particular label. And then there's a bunch of other characteristics I aggregated and tried to define and try to explain how they contribute to being an athlete, like irrational motivation, right? It's not normal to other people to put your body through physical pain. 
every day, you know, just to be good at something. So there's irrational motivation. Athletes have a blind belief in themselves against all odds. Like no matter how many people enter a race, only one person can win. But before the race, that's not what everyone thinks. Everyone thinks that they are going to win or that they have a shot at winning. So we like play these mind games with ourselves against the realistic probabilities. Um, and then just, you know, being overly dedicated, being a perfectionist, which unfortunately leads to being hypercritical over everything where you perform, you play your game, you play your match, and then you and your coach, or maybe just yourself look back, okay, where could I have improved? Where could I have like gone just a half a second faster? Where could I have done this better? Where could I have done this better? And so we're very critical people and not compassionate people as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think is the hardest thing is being compassionate with yourself, right? Like actually this morning uh, of all my track workouts this whole year, it was the only day I couldn't finish my track workout. I got to the track. It was like, we were talking about it before recording. It was super cold. And I don't know what happened if it like triggered my childhood asthma or something, but I was like, there's so much phlegm. I couldn't breathe. My heart rate like hit 200 in like my second interval. And I had eight more intervals and I got halfway and I said like, I can't sustain this pace. Like I can't even feel my hands and I don't know what's happening, but like, I'm just producing way too much phlegm. Like I should probably just stop. And then I was just so critical. It's like very hard to reflect and be like compassionate with yourself. Like, Hey, it was cold. There were issues. Like the smart decision was, you know, hitting a pause so that you don't get injured or something. Your muscles are still cold. And then you can go do another workout like later today. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the hard one. And I think, you know, if, someone with a normal desk job or something, you know, you don't finish a project quite like, Okay. I'll take a break. I'll come back to it. It's, they have a little bit of that natural, just, you know, move on compassion, but as an athlete, you just, you dissect everything, right? Because you're, you're chasing those 1% and you're like, if I didn't do this, like, what am I? Yeah. And there's also the mentality that if you're not constantly improving, oh, well, your competition is constantly improving and they're working on it. And if you're not improving, then you're just staying stagnant and that's not good. And how are you going to be better? You know, yeah, it's like all those cycle, that cycle of thoughts of, you know, you constantly have to be pushing. Yes, yes. And would you say, like, do you think that there's both negative and positives of some of these traits? Like, for example, the unwavering self-belief. Like I found that to, I found it to have both negative and positive in my life. Like when I go after something different in a different sport or in business or whatever it is, it's like, okay, sometimes I need that mentality to even get me to, to do it. Cause if I don't believe that there's a chance I could succeed or do this, then it's going to be really hard to do the actions to go there. But then at the same time, you, you got to be realistic and have these other plans and, and figure out, um, other options for, for the actions that you're going to take for if you don't win or if you don't succeed or these things don't happen. Yeah, I think, yes, there are positives. I think, especially for athletes in particular, like some of these characteristics to live with these mindsets, it can be a harsh way of living, right. To be so critical and perfectionist, it can be harsh, but it's also what helps you be really good and find success. Like I say, you know, perfectionism is your best friend when you're standing atop the podium, (laughs) but it's also your worst nightmare when, you know, you don't meet your expectations. So I think for athletes, when you're actively competing, they definitely are helpful, albeit harsh, but I think where athletes need to grow more awareness is when you're not actively competing and you do retire, or if you are injured and you're out for a season, you, you know, taking those characteristics out of context is actually rather harmful. Like if you're going to continue to be that intense about yourself and your training and everything, while you're not competing anymore, you're going to burn out like I did in my life. And athletes need to figure out how to adapt to a non-competitive environment while having those characteristics conditioned into them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think athletes can make anything competitive, like literally anything, uh, mm-hmm. driving to work, which is probably not the best to be competitive when you're doing <laughs> yeah. um, like that could be potentially dangerous or like just little things. And I think it, it's, 
second nature of like who you are, but how can, how can people balance that out? Like both the positive and negatives, how can they kind of, if they aren't, say they are injured and they're taking a break or they are retiring or whatever it may be that they're not in that competitive stage, how can they hit pause, but then also be able to bring those traits back when they need to? Yeah. I think the biggest thing is just being aware of what you're thinking and doing in your environment. Because if you are actively competing and you're still intense and critical and perfectionist and all these things, that's okay. You know, just have awareness that you're doing that and that that is helping you be successful. But if you're not in that environment, just, you know, just literally take a step back and have the awareness and the understanding that those characteristics are not helping you anymore. And I mean, to get into specifics, like I laid this out in my book too, practice things like acceptance, practice things like I, you know, I'm going to do my best and whatever I set out to do, not more than my best, not any less than my best. And I'm not going to refute my performance because if I can do my best, what do I have to argue? Um, and just also practicing self-compassion. That's a huge one. Like learning to embrace the average human parts of, of you outside of the high profile accomplishment athlete person. Uh, that's a tough one for athletes. They may not want to embrace that part of themselves, but that's, you know, that is the way to practice self-love and self-compassion is to take care of the human being first before the athlete. So I think just growing awareness, just, you know, listening to conversations like this or other podcasts or books or other things. Um, I think that's helpful. Mm, yeah, I think awareness is just so important because a lot of us move through the, the day and through our lives without any awareness of what we're doing and who we are and what we're feeling in the moments. It's kind of going through the actions. And I think as an athlete, because everything is so repetitive and routine, you do go through the actions a lot. And all of a sudden you're not really present in them and you're not aware and you've become, you know, maybe a different person or just this very hyper-focused person. And all of a sudden it's like five years later and like, wait, who am I? What are these patterns that I've been doing for, for five years? And I think that's what also makes it so difficult when athletes retire is they're like, I feel like a different person than when I first even started my sport, but what has happened? Because I've just been in the cycle of every morning I wake up, I train, I do this and uh, I haven't actually just paid attention. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I think awareness is a hard one, but it is it is super important. I mean, self-awareness is is obviously extremely important, but also like that mindful awareness of like in the moment. And I think that's something even like to learning how to chill like that I've had to to work on is being aware in those those relaxed moments. Like, how do I feel? Uh, and then trying to, con you know, go over those feelings of, oh, I feel like I'm not doing making progress or I'm not doing uh, anything worthwhile. And I was like, well, why do I feel like that? Like, is the whole point yeah. of being on earth to like do this sport goal or do this? And like, mm. and, <laughs> and going back to something you said, like, I really believe in this, the statement, like human being over human doing. And, um, and I think that's just so important for, for people to know, like you are more than whatever you do. Like we are just human beings and we, most of us don't spend enough time actually just being. Yeah, that's true. And I also like dabbled a bit into Buddhism and like learning about the, you know, the pillars of Buddhism. And I think just even outside of a religion, just as a life philosophy, it's super helpful for athletes because in Buddhism, like they explain all of your suffering is because you're desiring something that you don't have. Like whether it's an object or a job promotion or a gold medal, like all of the suffering that you're creating for yourself is because of your desires. So, you know, they teach you, okay, well, don't have those desires, basically <laughs> accept life as it is, how it is right now, like really be in the moment and just practice acceptance. And I think for athletes, like every athlete, they're not competing and training to just for, for nothing, for no results, right? Every athlete wants to see success and they want to see the gold medal. They want to see the first place. So our whole life as an athlete is characterized by this pursuit of something, this desire for something. And I think that's why the pitfalls also feel so low is because when you don't achieve those results, because you're not going to achieve them every time, you're going to really crash and you're going to really feel heartbreak. You know, sure, you can pick yourself up and move on, but you're going to feel those moments and then I think the toughest thing is when an athlete retires, learning to adopt that acceptance 
and not have, you know, those desires for something in your life, that's been super helpful to me. I, it's kind of like existential and really like taking a step back, but I, I'm really unaffected now than I've ever been in my life. And especially when I was competing, like the pre version of me, I would be so affected by what's happening, what people are saying, what's going on, how I'm perceived. And I, you know, I would have you know, really bad anxiety or ruminating thoughts over things for days or even weeks at times. And it was really debilitating. But now I just, I practice this acceptance. I practice self-compassion. I, I don't take on the burden of other people's feelings. I don't take things personally. Like I practice all these thoughts and perspectives that even if I still try to do good things and I still want to have a good performance or still be excellent at things, if it doesn't go according to plan, or if it's not as good as I had hoped, I don't feel like affected by that outcome. I do what I can to do a good job. And however it lands, I accept that. Mm, I love that. And I love that you brought up the, yeah, Buddhism is so uh, interesting. I, when I was a kid, my parents didn't really raise us with any religion, but my dad gave me a book about all the world religions. And he said, here, you can read if you want to. about oh, all these awesome. <laughs> yeah, all these different religions. And I remember, I'm like, I'm going to be a Buddhist after I read the book. I was like, it's so interesting. And then I kind of forgot about it for a while, but I've been to like Bali a couple of times and, and gotten really into the culture. And um, I have little Buddhas everywhere. <laughs> but um, yeah, I love, love learning about those things because I think it's just so interesting. We actually, we saw these monks once at the um, airport they were taking selfies, which I thought was strange. It's <laughs> like, I didn't think monks actually. Yeah, did. really? <laughs> did they have, are they allowed to have smartphones? <laughs> yeah, they were just in the airport. Uh, I forget if we were going through Singapore or something and they were all just taking selfies. And I was like, I kind of want a selfie with you <laughs> because it's kind of funny. Like, I didn't know that, yeah, you could just do that. But none of them were really talking, which either. So maybe they were, they're silent, but they speak with their content or something. Huh. Yeah, interesting. They're just maybe some social media artists or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps. But I, yeah, I, I love what you said about the acceptance because something that I've been trying to put to the test is like I've similarly gone through um, a similar phase where I just feel like um, I like I I went from snowboarding. I had to deal with all the retirement issues, but I kind of replaced that whole snowboard high with training for CrossFit and competing in CrossFit, basically like the season after. So as much as I had to deal with the retirement, I still was a full-time athlete and kind of kept that identity in a sense. And then it's been, I think it's been 800 and I've been, I have a track on my phone, but 853 days since I've competed. So like two and a half years because I hurt myself, I got a shoulder injury and then the pandemic happened and my shoulder wasn't healing. It was misdiagnosed. We figured out what it was. Mm. Thankfully, I just found out I don't need surgery. And now I'm starting to make like, at one point I was basically like, I think I'm just not going to compete again. Like, let me just, you know, like, this is, this is what I'm going to do. I, you know, I already have my business and all these different things, but then, um, I started like feeling like, Oh no, like I, I kind of want to compete again, but in just such a different mindset. And the mindset before was still attached to this athlete identity. And now it's literally like, I just really love the feeling of being out there and what I learn about myself when I put myself through competition. But I feel like I feel motivated that it's like pushing me to do my shoulder rehab, get through this, you know, keep training. But at the same time, if I don't get there, like something is wrong with my body and I'm like, okay, you know what? Shoulder's never going to heal. So I got to take it back or it's not going to heal properly if I push it or anything. I feel like that wouldn't ruin my life back in the day. It would, right? Like, like, oh, this injury happened. Like that ruins my life because this was my whole plan. But for me, it's literally like, no, like I just have this mindset that it doesn't take away from my motivation. I think that's, that's what I want to put to the test to kind of show people that having this mindset and being more well-rounded doesn't take away your motivation and drive to be, you know, a top athlete, but it helps you deal with also the lows and the potential. You're only, like you said, only one person can win only, you know, a certain percentage of people are ever going to make it to that top level. And so how do you deal with that? And so for me, I just don't feel this attachment to the outcome. I just know I'm putting in the work. I'm enjoying doing it and I'll keep doing it. If I enjoy doing it, if I don't like no big deal. 
Yeah. And I mean, you probably have that perspective now because you did take a step back and, you know, when you were going through physical therapy or trying to figure out what was wrong, you, you know, you had that space to kind of assess what was happening and take a step back and, you know, decompress a little bit to have that experience of, oh, okay, if I don't do this, it's not the end of the world. That probably shaped your new perspective too. Yeah, 100%. And like, just going through it, I needed a mental break anyways. Because again, it was like getting back to ramping up. I was like, I need to be Mark Zuckerberg in business and CrossFit Games athlete. And then it was like, no, you cannot do both. That's not possible. Again, it was the the unwavering self-belief that uh, led me to overextend on all all fronts. So there is that negative of of those uh, athletic traits. But um, now I'm relying on that self-belief that like I can get through my shoulder progress. If I don't see that progress day to day, I'm like, I know it's still, you know, I'm doing the right things and it's, it's still going to get there, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, um, how that plays out. Like when I do perhaps get to competition, if it doesn't go as well, or if it does, or who knows, um, I'm, I'm excited to put that, put that to the test. But I think, um, that being said, like, I'd love to talk about injuries and I know you talk about injury coping skills in the book. If you could go through some, because I know, uh, I get a lot of messages from people who have been dealing with different injuries, whether it's taking them out kind of permanently from sports or temporarily. And, um, with the pandemic, a lot of athletes just even off in general, how, how can athletes deal uh, better with that? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that's upsetting and frustrating about being injured is the uncertainty right? There's uncertainty with how your body's going to heal. What's the timeline? Are you going to be back on the field in two weeks or is it going to take a year? Um, do you need surgery? How are, how are your teammates perceiving you? How is your coach perceiving you? But like, what's going to happen? Like all of these questions create so much uncertainty and that is really, really debilitating for humans. Like we would rather know for certain if a bad thing is going to happen than to be stuck with the uncertainty, right? Like the example I use is we'd rather know the hurricane is going to demolish our house than sit with our eyes glued to the TV screen, wondering if our house is going to be demolished and if it's going to be there the next day, like we'd rather know. And so that's like the biggest thing with being injured. And I think what athletes can do is anything they can do to backfill that uncertainty with certainty is going to help ease that period of being injured. So, you know, create a daily tracker or a weekly tracker of, okay, I'm going to try by the end of this week to walk without crutches. Like that's my goal for this week. I'm going to take the baby steps necessary to try and get there or, okay, I have three PT sessions scheduled this week. I'm going to put it down on this piece of paper. Every single one I go to, I'm going to give the check mark and move on to the next one. Or, you know, I'm going to set up a weekly call with either my coach or a trusted teammate or someone else just to go over my progress and have someone root for me and hold me accountable and feel that sense of progress and certainty as I'm moving through this. Um, so yeah, anything that can help add some certainty to your life, I think that's the biggest thing because the uncertainty is crippling. <laughs> mm, that's such a such a good point. Like for example, for me, it was weight. Like in the U.S., you can get an MRI like probably tomorrow. I would assume like it's pretty quick. Here, people say, "Oh, your healthcare is free." I'm like, "Yeah, but some people wait years for an MRI." Like literally. Oh, wow. Luckily, uh, like as an athlete, I didn't have to wait as long, but it was still a couple months before from when I first booked it to when I got it, which if you could imagine if you were competing and you're just waiting a couple months on an MRI, that would be crazy. So luckily for me, I'm already, you know, off and obviously something's wrong. I'm like, it's not like, you know, MRI shows this, it's good. Okay. I can go tomorrow. But that uncertainty of knowing, like, will I need surgery? So then even though I had all my PT sessions, I had uh, my shoulder rehab program created for me, it was much more difficult to stick to it, thinking, well, if I'm probably going to need surgery, it's going to be a whole different rehab program. And so because of this uncertainty, I don't know how to take proper action versus when all of a sudden it's like, no, you don't need surgery. It was like, 
perfect. Now I'm 100% compliant on my shoulder rehab. I'm, you know, all these things. Yeah. And I think that goes back to, it. it is very hard to deal with uncertainty. And that's definitely one of the, the biggest issues. And I think most people, they want to kind of have some comfort of knowing like, okay, a bad thing's going to happen or it's going to be a good thing. But when you don't know, it's, it's worse. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think another thing is just be realistic and acknowledge the reality of the situation. It gets amazing how many athletes get injured and are kind of stuck in denial and don't show up to PT because they don't want to acknowledge that they can't play. So yeah, it's a little bit of that tough love again, but acknowledge and say out loud to yourself, Hey, I'm injured right now. Like I need to take care of my body and I'm going to practice gratitude for the health I do have because who knows this injury, they could have hit me two inches below and I could have, you know, been out forever. So yeah, acknowledge the situation and practice gratitude too. Yes. I've, I've seen that a lot where athletes have some sort of major pain, like a knee pain or a shoulder pain or something. And you say, Oh, like, have you gone to the doctor to get it checked out? No, I don't want to know. Well, how can you move forward if you don't actually know what it is? Right. And then they live, you know, they try to compete for a couple seasons with this really bad injury that they have no idea what it is. How do you know how to properly treat it? How could you move forward where if they would have just immediately gone and try to get the MRI, work with the doctor, whatever it is, it could have just been, you know, six months and you're back and you're better than ever rather than something that maybe you can't fix. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, it's tough, tough to, I think as an athlete that it just threatens your identity, right? Like having that uncertainty and not knowing if, oh, will I still be that athlete? And like you said, I think it's so important that you said, who, what will other people think of me? You know, who will I be to the coaches? Will they kind of forget about me? And now I'm the the bench player because they don't know, will I be able to bounce back from an injury or so be it? And that's, that's definitely a tough one. Yeah. And then even like the tougher layer of that is, it's one thing to be injured and have the opportunity to come back and play, but it's another thing to be injured and have to involuntarily retire. Mm. Those are like the most vulnerable moments for athletes that when they succumb to like depression or, you know, severe anxiety, severe stress. So having that awareness in those situations of, okay, I did not want to retire, but I got injured or, you know, fractured my whatever bone and now I can't play anymore ever. So in those moments, like definitely reach out to your support system. I would say go to therapy just to talk through the situation with someone that is trusted and credible and yeah, definitely practice gratitude for the health you do have in those moments, because, you know, like I said, unfortunately with injuries, it could be a lot worse than it currently is. Yeah. 100%. Going back to like the first, like your story that we talked about at the start and this, your book, um, the eye of the tiger for those listening, um, it came out pretty recently, like in the past month, I believe. Uh Um, and you said that you retired from sports, you know, 10 years ago. So I'd love to know like what in this last 10 years then inspired you to come back and, and write this book about, you know, your story and, um, your tips for others going through it. Sure. So yeah, I retired 2012 from swimming and it's actually interesting. I never had an injury when I was swimming, but I've had injuries playing tennis. It's weird. Like swimming is one of those non like impact sports. So I have, have friends. Had, what have your tennis injuries been? Cause I'm curious, has it been like shoulders or things like um, that? I had a thing called trigger finger in my oh. hand where my finger would like literally get stuck like that. And oh, I'd wow. have to like peel it open Um, and then I had a stress fracture on my arm and I've, I've only been playing tennis like three years now, three and a half years. So it's like 15 years of swimming, never had an injury from (laughs) swimming and three years of tennis. I've already had to have a surgery. (laughs) Oh gosh. I, wow. I'm surprised. Yeah. Cause I, I was just thinking in my head, putting the connection of swimming is it's, it is hard on the shoulders because of that overhead. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of swimmers get the shoulder impingement. And so I was assuming, you know, with the tennis movements again, maybe in different postural ways, like it's stressing those things, but no, like trigger finger, I don't think yeah. swimming is too tough on your fingers necessarily. So I know. And like my knees, I have to ice my knees after I play tennis. I don't have great knees. So it's tennis is just a hard sport on your body. <laughs> it, is, it is like that yeah. stop start and pivoting different directions. And then like, like hard hits kind of, um, from 
kind of stable movement, it, it definitely is a hard sport on your body. Yeah. But yeah, to go back to your question. So after I retired from swimming in college, basically the next three years in college, my sophomore, junior and senior year were the most miserable years of my life. I was super depressed. I couldn't figure out who I was, what was important to me, that whole identity crisis after retiring. And I eventually graduated and moved back home with my parents. And for the next five, six years, which brings me to last summer, not this past summer, but the summer before, um, it looked like I was doing fine and doing well. I had a, a corporate job. I had the boyfriend. I had a new puppy. I bought a townhouse. Like all of these things on paper looked like I was happy and thriving and doing well, which, you know, to some level I was, but underneath, I still think I struggled with that athlete identity and kind of the trauma from being so depressed those years in college. I don't think I, I knew I did not fully resolve those tensions and those frustrations and that sadness probably. So ultimately last summer, I played a mixed doubles tennis match with my boyfriend at the time and we were undefeated. I know this sounds cheesy, but like <laughs> it was important to me to go to the championship final with him, like win the thing with him. That was going to be so special, but we go to the playoffs and we lose one of the playoff matches and, you know, we just played awful shots into the net. Like we both ended up on the same side of the court, which is like a total no, no. We just played terrible. <laughs> and after we lost, I was so frustrated and angry because I saw, I saw both of us going all the way. And I was like, what? Like, how could we lose? And I was so mad and I had to walk to my car and like sit in silence for 10 minutes. Cause I was so upset. And that night I ended up writing out an email to him, my boyfriend, about all the reasons, you know, he was the reason that we lost, like all <laughs> of the errors he made, and that I was never going to play tennis with him again. Oh right? my so you can imagine, it's like super great to date me. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So I sent that email and then the next day I woke up and I just had this pit in my stomach of, Oh no, what did I do? Did I really <laughs> set this? And yes, I really sent it. And I was just like, Oh my God, like, why am I this way? Like, why am I so competitive? Can I not lose? Like, can I just not lose? Like, can I not lose this local league tennis match? This is not the U S open, you know, <laughs> like, can I, why am I so critical? Why do I have to lash out at this person? Like this person that I love, like, why am I so intense like this? And I couldn't answer it. I could not find a good reason for me being this way, other than me being an athlete for 15 years and me being a competitive swimmer. So, you know, I dabbled a bit into podcasts and I did some reading. I started going to therapy just to try and like make sense of why I was this way, because I did not want to live my life like that, hurting other people and hurting myself ultimately too. So I, you know, tried to figure out myself and I couldn't figure out myself. I, like there wasn't anything out there that was explaining what it means to be a modern athlete and like what comprises that athlete identity and then how to undo those, you know, wires in my brain. So I was like, screw it. I'm just going to do it myself. Like I'm just going to sit down and research and use my own life experiences and put all of this in a book of what the athlete identity actually is and then going further, overcoming those tough moments of defeat, which I struggled with, injury and retirement, which I really struggled with. So that brought me to last summer. That was that tennis match. And then over the past year, I quit my nine to five corporate job. I was working at a startup. I quit my job. I spent my days just writing and editing and revising and writing some more and finally launched this book last month. Wow. Awesome. Well, congrats on all those <laughs> changes. Also kudos on like all, just a self-reflection that when you did send that email and you, you were able to wake up and be like, wait, like what have I done? Because I think a lot of people do, they, yeah. they're not at that stage yet. They haven't had like that wake up call. And so they move through life 
causing, you know, trauma and harm to other people and themselves over and over and over again, until finally they, they are able to reflect and be aware in those moments and be like, wait a second, something is wrong. And then it takes a lot of courage to then be like, okay, I need to go to therapy. I need to do these things. I need to like change it because it's, it is easy just to keep repeating the same patterns. Yeah. And I think I was repeating a lot of the same patterns, you know, in my early mid twenties, I think that particular incident was the wake up call for me because I hurt someone else that I really loved and cared about. Like I have a high tolerance for self-inflicted pain, (laughs) which is not good, but hurting someone else that you really care about, that's like a totally different kind of pain. Like I couldn't just wipe it away. I couldn't just fix it for him. I really like hated that feeling. So that was the wake up call for me. Mm, I actually, that, that brings me back to when you said something about, you know, not being able to chill. And I will say like, probably my boyfriend has been the biggest helper of causing me to, to learn how to chill because we went on a trip actually. So when I hurt my shoulder, I was in Bali and a cat ran in front of my motorbike, but it was a, it was a whole thing, but it was right after. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was not great, but my shoulder weren't great before that to begin with. They were always kind of my limiter in CrossFit uh, at the start. So perhaps it was for the better. Cause now it's caused me to spend two years rehabbing and working on improved shoulder mobility and positioning. Um, but yeah, we went to China for this competition that I was competing in first. And then we said, okay, let's go on vacation to Bali. And my parents literally like sat me down and were like, Nat, like all you do is work. You train and you work and like, you need to enjoy this vacation and learn to just relax. Otherwise, like, why would he want to hang out with you? Like, (laughs) they're like, but like they were just saying like, you know, he comes over and all you do is work or like uh, we were doing long distance. So I would go there, but I still have to to work the whole time. And and I'm constantly stressed out and either working or training. And luckily he worked at a gym. So like training was kind of while he was working. So that, that worked out, but then I'd be on my laptop until the, the wee hours of night. And so it's actually been that. And then this year living together, that's really caused me to like, now there's probably one, maybe one and a half days a week that I don't touch my laptop. Like on the weekends, I try to, especially when he was working nine to five, it was like, okay, when he comes back from work, I need to be done my stuff. So like, we actually have some time together. And so that's yeah, been the uh, biggest, cause I realized I same thing. Like I can, I can harm myself in the sense of not relaxing or chilling. But when it came to realizing that then I'm not showing up for this other person that I care about, then I was like, Hey, that triggered something of like, I have to change something here. Yeah. And I love that you brought that up because I think dating someone who has certain qualities that you want to emulate or that is a a nice match for the qualities that you have is like the biggest eye opener and kind of life lesson too, because like my ex-boyfriend, I didn't know that there were people who didn't struggle with mental health out there. Like (laughs) he, like, I'm like how nothing bothers him. And he truly is a person who doesn't care about what other people think. Like he was a lawyer. And so he has to pitch deals and stuff. And you know, if he lost a deal, he would not never be like, Oh man, like, I wonder why they didn't like me and why they didn't pick me. Like, I wonder what I could have done better. Like thinking of him saying that it's like funny, almost like he would just say, Oh, well, you know, they're lost. Like they're going to get a crappy lawyer and they're going to struggle on their deal. Like, you know, (laughs) I know I'm confident in my abilities. It's it's their loss. And I'm like, wow. Like what? People just do that naturally. (laughs) I know. When I look at being a lawyer, I'm like, oh, that would be stressful because I would love the highs and then the lows. I'd be like thinking about it all night. (laughs) Yeah. He's just like, it's amazing to see someone who does not spend any time ruminating on the negative. Like he just takes things at face value and moves on. Like if anything affects him, it's like, okay, he'll have a conversation and it's already in the past. I'm like, you are so lucky. (laughs) Seriously. You don't have that voice in your head constantly. I know. I'm like, wow. So I try to be like him. (laughs) 
That's awesome. But it is so true. Like any relationships that we have, even with our parents or friends or um, animals, maybe like you, my dog has taught me how to chill out too, for sure. Yeah. Or be present, um, I think can be very beneficial. And I think that's, that is one of the hard parts or the things with being an athlete is you to surround yourself with other like-minded people who are also, you know, super hyper-focused, intense, competitive with each other, maybe fighting for the same spots on the team or whatever it is, versus maybe surrounding yourself with some people who have opposite qualities uh, could be some benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I have two questions. I always like to end things off, uh, off with the first one is out of all the daily habits that you have, what is the one biggest game changer for you? Cutting out alcohol a hundred percent because in college I totally was a binge drinker, partied way too much, even into my twenties, just drank way too much. I'm Irish Italian. So I blame it on the Irish in me to just be a drinker. But when I, I cut out alcohol last summer as well, I went 10 weeks without a single drop of alcohol, which was, I think the first time since I turned 21 that I went that long without alcohol. And it was just amazing how it affected so many parts of me, my skin, I was less bloated. Like I wasn't spending money on alcohol. And then the biggest thing was waking up in the morning, like historically I would wake up and I would immediately stress over everything I need to get done in the day. And what do I need to do? And all these things. And I would just feel like down, I would have a negative outlook on life and cutting out alcohol was the first time in years that I woke up and I was refreshed. My mind was light. My mind was clear. I was confident in my abilities. I would wake up and say, okay, I I have to do these things for work. Not only am I going to do them, but I'll, I'll do them really well and I'll be done with my day and it'll be great. Like life became so much easier when I quit drinking alcohol. Hmm. That's, that's some great points. We've been drinking, um, athletic brewing it's like a non-alcoholic beer oh cool it is so i i mean i neither of us were were big drinkers at all especially like with training for crossfit and stuff just you feel immediately with your recovery um so yeah so i was pretty much kind of the person who just really never drank but then i started over the pandemic like i i wanted to support this local craft brew brewery that i knew so like once a week i'd have their craft brew. And I was like, "Mm, I really like it. But at the same time, as my training started to get back, I was like, oh, but I don't really like want to drink. But like, I started feeling like, oh, like it feels nice to have a drink at the end of the day. So I found this like athletic brewing podcast, not sponsored by them, but they are awesome. (laughs) Um, and yeah, we, we started drinking them and I thought it was so stupid because I was like, I'm not a big beer drinker. Like, why would I drink a non-alcoholic beer? It's not like I love the taste of beer, but it triggered the same like response. So at the end of the day, you drink it. You're like, Hey, it's time to relax, watch a show on Netflix. But of course it's just, you know, it just, it's wheat water, basically. It's not a, yeah, there's no alcohol. So you have no kind of repercussions. I love that. And that's a good option, especially for social settings. Like if you don't want to drink and you can still do that, that's amazing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. We went to a couple cottages this summer where we just brought those because we knew we had to drive home or whatever it was. And yeah, I totally, you feel the same, like with everybody else drinking a beer or if they wanted to play, I don't know, a beer game or something you could play with it. Um, but yeah, you have no repercussions. So, and people might think not alcoholic beer is silly, but I, I, it's going to be a big thing soon. I think. I agree. That's awesome. So the last question is, uh, it's you're thinking ahead. You're at the end of your life. Maybe it's 200 years. Who knows how long we'll live, um, <laughs> but you're looking back. <laughs> I don't think 200 would be a good. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I want to live that long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe not that long. Um, but you're looking back on your life and you're looking over all the things you've done. What is the impact that you wanted to have made or that you hope that you would have made? Oh, I love that question. Um, I would say if I could just help other people live a life with maximized enjoyment and minimized sorrow, that would be amazing. I mean, I I don't want to venture as far to say, oh, if I could save a life, like save an athlete from committing suicide, but if I could help athletes or help people enjoy their existence on this planet a little bit more to me, that's something that has value and lasting meaning more than any fancy car promotion, money, whatever. 
just helping people, not only does it feel good to me, but it feels good to help them find more happiness while they're here on earth. Like that's what we're here for. If you, I don't know if you follow Brene Brown or read her books, but she talks about connection. That's why we're here. Um, I think that's also why we're having this like epidemic of people suffering from depression and anxiety and mental health is because yeah, we're all accessing each other online, but we're also very removed from each other in person. Like we don't have that genuine connection. So yeah, if I can help people just live a life better and leave them better than when they first met me, I think that would be, that would be great for me. I love that. And I think the world needs more people doing that because, you know, when people are living better and they're in more enjoyment, they're they're not harming other people. They're not leaving negative comments. They're not tearing other people down. They're paying it forward and bringing more enjoyment again to other people's lives. So uh, it, the ripple effect is, is definitely large. Um, where can people find like the work that you do? I know you run everything athletes as well as your book. Yeah, you can check out my website. It's everythingathletes.com. And then the book is called the eye of the tiger. I as an identity, not I as an eyeball <laughs> and that's on Amazon. So you can find me there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, share your knowledge and your story. And I hope people will go and and check out your book because it's it's definitely helpful. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for having me. Hey, I think that the greatest gift in life is presence. So thank you so much for gracing me with your presence of tuning in to this episode. Now, something that I would appreciate a ton and would help this podcast keep growing is if you, one, take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media so more people can find the podcast and hopefully we can help impact more people. As well as number two is if you can leave a rating and a written review. That means so much. And once again, thank you for being here.